More demonstrations and calls for police reform nationwide days after the release of the video showing the police beating death of Tyree Nichols. It's Monday, January 30th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, the Department of Energy is trying to secure the nation's power grid after recent attacks on electric substations. We're going to use all of this information to inform how do we build a grid that is more resilient in the future. Also this hour, with Massachusetts Republicans out of power and low on cash, some in the party say it's time for new leadership. The party has gone in a direction that has not been helpful to winning elections, so we need to get back to basics. And helping seniors with dementia avoid being exploited financially. In sports, the Bruins lose. It'll be Kansas City and Philadelphia in the Super Bowl, partly sunny in the 40s today. It's 7.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. Civil rights activists are calling for an investigation of the police unit that addressed violent crime in Memphis, Tennessee. The Memphis police chief has permanently disbanded the so-called Scorpion Unit. The five former officers charged with murder in the death of black motorist Tyree Nichols belong to this unit. NPR's Michelle Martin is in Memphis. She's spoken with some residents and gathered numerous reports of similar harsh tactics and frightening encounters with Memphis police. People spoke of having their doors broken down by police who had the wrong address on a warrant. We're talking about family members being treated so roughly after being stopped for minor traffic issues that they needed medical treatment. It was really disturbing to hear how common an experience it was for many of the people we spoke with. And Pierre's Michelle Martin in Memphis. President Biden goes to Baltimore today to discuss infrastructure. He'll visit an aging rail tunnel that will be repaired with money from the bipartisan infrastructure law. In Pakistan, an official tells NPR that a powerful blast at a mosque in the city of Peshawar has killed at least 28 people. More than 65 others are wounded. NPR's Dia Hadid reports from Islamabad Pakistani officials believe it was a suicide bomb attack. The blast occurred in a crowded mosque frequented by police. Images shared on social media showed parts of the outside wall of the building were blown away. Anis Khan, the manager of the emergency unit at one of Peshawar's main hospitals, known as Lady Reading, told NPR that he was counting bodies. There's been ever-increasing attacks on soldiers and police since the Taliban seized power of neighbouring Afghanistan over a year ago. An offshoot of the Taliban often claims responsibility. Also Monday, authorities announced a sudden public holiday as they prepared to host the President of the United Arab Emirates. But the Pakistani Prime Minister's office said that visit was called off because of the weather. Dear Hadid, NPR News, Islamabad. The Philadelphia Eagles will meet the Kansas City Chiefs in this year's Super Bowl. Philadelphia shellacked the San Francisco 49ers yesterday 31-7 to advance to the championship. Greg Eklund reports from Kansas City. The Chiefs held on to beat the Cincinnati Bengals 23-20 with a field goal in the final seconds of the game. Kicker Harrison Butker connected on a 45-yard field goal with three seconds left for the game winner. Chiefs quarterback Patrick Mahomes says he was glad the Chiefs got a chance to redeem themselves after losing to the Bengals in the AFC Championship last year. We needed to get this win. We wanted to play this team. Um, and uh, we got them at Arrowhead Stadium, and uh, we were able to finish the job this time. The Chiefs are making their third trip to the Super Bowl in the last four years. They'll be facing the Philadelphia Eagles on February 12th. For NPR News, I'm Greg Eklund. You're listening to NPR News.
Secretary of State Antony Blinken is scheduled to arrive this hour in Israel. His trip to visit Israeli and Palestinian officials comes as tension remains very high amid new violence. There have been numerous deadly raids by Israeli forces into occupied Palestinian areas. Last Friday, a Palestinian gunman opened fire outside a synagogue in Jerusalem. Seven people were killed and three others wounded. The U.S. has called for restraint on all sides. Gender-affirming surgery and hormone therapy for transgender youth are now illegal in Utah. From member station KUER in Salt Lake City, Caroline Ballard has more. Utah Governor Spencer Cox signed the bill into law Saturday. It immediately prohibits transgender people younger than 18 from accessing puberty blockers, cross-sex hormones, and surgeries like breast reduction or removal. Minors who are already receiving those treatments will be allowed to continue. The ACLU of Utah says there are, quote, numerous constitutional issues with the ban. Lawmakers on both sides of the aisle say they fully expect the law to be challenged in the courts. For NPR News, I'm Caroline Ballard. Forecasters are warning of a major winter storm this week in parts of the Plains and the South. The National Weather Service says the storm will create a significant icing event. This could create dangerously icy conditions from Texas to Tennessee. Frigid cold weather will create freezing rain and sleet. There could be measurable amounts of ice found across as many as 15 states. I'm Corva Coleman, NPR News in Washington. From WPR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. School is canceled for students in Woburn this morning. That's because teachers are on strike. Their union could not reach a contract deal last night with the Woburn School Committee. Negotiations have been going on since August of last year. This is just the latest in a series of teacher strikes in the past year. Brookline and Malden teachers were off the job for one day. Haverhill educators picketed for almost a week before settling on a contract. Leaders at Boston-area black churches this weekend addressed the police killing of Tyree Nichols in Memphis. At the 12th Baptist Church in Roxbury, the Reverend Jeffrey Brown said he was horrified by what he saw on the video released Friday. He said Nichols was trying to cooperate with police. There was no any of the other excuses that they usually give to justify beating someone to death. I can't even say this is what they do to black men because they do the same thing to black women. Boston Mayor Michelle Wu says the death of Nichols shows the city needs to move forward with police reforms. The State Gaming Commission today takes the last step before sports betting goes live in Massachusetts. It will formally sign off on the permits to allow the state's three casinos to begin taking bets tomorrow morning. More now from WBUR's Sharon Brody. The new landscape introduces some risks as the sports focus might lure people who have not gambled before. UMass Amherst School of Public Health and Health Sciences researcher Rachel Volberg studies gambling and problem gambling. And she says if you're a newcomer, then you would be wise to only carry as much cash to the casino as you are willing to lose. It's just going to be entertainment money. Take that money with you. Leave all your credit cards at home. Leave all of your cards that you use to access money at home. Bolberg says it's a good idea to go with friends and make one of them the designated non-gambler who can spot if someone's getting into trouble. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Sharon Brody. 
There are efforts on Beacon Hill to make you pay a nickel more for everything from water to wine. Several bills filed by lawmakers would extend the state's container deposit to non-carbonated beverages. Some plans would also increase the deposit from a nickel to a dime. Lawmakers behind the bill tell the Telegram and Gazette they hope it helps cut down on pollution. Voters rejected a similar measure back in 2014. It's 7.08. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Metro West Subaru, where same-day and next-day service appointments are available. Service until 9 on Route 9 in Natick. The Bruins lost to the Hurricanes 4-1 last night in North Carolina. The Bees' next game is Wednesday against the Leafs in Toronto. Partly sunny today with a high in the mid-40s. Mostly cloudy tonight with a chance for rain. It'll be in the lower 30s. Clouds give way to sun tomorrow, mid-30s. It should stay dry through Saturday. It's 40 degrees in Boston at 709. WBUR supporters include the Pew Charitable Trusts, now sharing stories and solutions from the front lines of America's mental health crisis on the After the Fact podcast. Available at pewtrusts.org slash after the fact. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep in Washington. And I'm A. Martinez in Culver City, California. The five former Memphis cops involved in the deadly beating of Tyree Nichols are awaiting arraignment on murder charges. They were members of the, so, the city's so-called Scorpion Unit designed to target crime hotspots. That was disbanded over the weekend. Lawyers for the Nichols family called it a decent and just decision. They're also calling for more police reforms. Joining us now is pastor and retired Memphis police Colonel James Kirkwood. He heads the Memphis Civilian Law Enforcement Review Board, known as CLERB. Pastor, you spent more than three decades on the Memphis Police Department. First off, what was your reaction when you saw those videos being released? Uh, my reaction was one, uh, I was sad, I was embarrassed, and just uh, total shock uh, that this behavior, this act of violence uh, on a, a young man, uh, Mr. Nichols, who didn't even show aggression, uh, took place. What was the most embarrassing part about it for you as a professional, as a Memphis police officer, former Memphis police officer? That that we had a group of police officers uh, acting like a wolf pack uh, on a man who had done nothing. He hadn't shown any violence. He hadn't shown uh, there was no call that said that he had uh, committed any heinous acts. Uh, I was blown away that even... uh, this man never even cussed uh, during the altercation. Uh, you know, that was a, a sad moment for me. And uh, in talking to a lot of other colleagues who retired and went on, it's the same uh, for them. Yeah, I mean, this could have been someone's son, right? You, your son, your colleague's son. I mean, some. That's that's how deep this thing goes. Yeah. As a retired veteran officer, what changes in training and policy do you think are needed? I think uh, all too often we uh, basically change, we train so hard. Uh, we spend many hours uh, at the gun range. We spend many hours on aggressive maneuvers to uh, fight and to, uh, you know, how to apprehend officers, uh, how to apprehend suspects. Uh, when the truth of the matter, uh, most of most police officers never ever pull their weapon to shoot anybody. 
and I mean the overwhelming majority of police officers, never ever fired their weapons uh, at anybody, uh, never ever pulled their weapons to shoot anybody. Uh, most police officers, the overwhelming majority, never get into a real fight, you know, where, I mean, a real fight takes place in their career. Uh, but what we do deal with often and more and more each day is individuals in crisis, people needing assistance, people needing uh, entering into disturbances where de-escalation needs to take place. Uh, we enter into situations where we truly need to understand uh, the, 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 the emotional uh, learning, the social uh, uh, aspects of what's going on in this situation. Yeah, so police officers, you're saying, are training for something that rarely, if ever, rarely, may happen. Yeah, it rarely has ever happened, but the very thing that you deal with on a daily basis, interacting with community, you get little training on, and that's what officers need. Uh, they need a whole lot of training on de-escalation, a lot of training on the social, emotional learning and cultural awareness. But, but uh, Pastor, isn't that something we've known already, though? I mean, it, it seems like we've known that for a long time. You know, I didn't get your name, uh, but listen, you are absolutely right, all right? We have known it down through the years, and you always hear people say it. After every protest, these things are called for, but oftentimes ignored. They're often, it is often said that we are going to do it, but then all of a sudden, you know, after months, a few months down the road, those things are forgotten, and we go back to the same old, same old that we've been doing uh, over and over years that always bring us back to the night that Mr. Knuckles uh, was killed. You know, we were right back at this moment again. After just a few years ago, we was dealing with it, and you had all the uh, protests come about, and, you know, everyone's saying we're going to put things in place. Eight yeah. can't wait. We're going to put this in place. We're going to change. We're going to beef up civilian law enforcement review boards. And afterwards, hey, very little is done. A civil rights investigation into what happened to Tyree Nichols is being planned. But, Pastor, I'm wondering if you think there should be a federal investigation in the entire Memphis Police Department. I think, uh, you know, I think not just Memphis. <laughs> I think every police department, all right? Uh, we just had a shooting a few months ago, uh, what, in January, uh, up in uh, uh Another area, another city in Tennessee, where a man, a man was killed uh, by officers. Uh, you know, I think every police department needs to be examined. We need to truly look and see how we have been policing in our communities. Uh, why do we continue to do the same thing over and over and over when we know it always brings us back to uh, protests? We hear people complaining every day. Uh, and what we will hear people come back and say, well, we have a good relationship with the community. Uh, our police department has a good relationship with the community. And then you have to come back and say, which community are you talking about? You, know, you have yeah. to ask, which community are you talking about? Because if you come down in certain communities, you will find that, no, I, we don't have a real good relationship. Uh, you know, you may have a good relationship in this segment of the African-American community or this segment in the Hispanic community. But overall, uh, if, 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 if when you raise in your hand, when people are, when you ask, uh, do you have a good relationship yeah. with your police department and people don't raise their hand, 
and they begin to complain, you have to pay attention to that. Pastor James Kirkwood chairs the Civilian Law Enforcement Review Board in Memphis, Tennessee. Pastor, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. Peru faced a weekend of protest in which at least one person died. The total death toll in confrontations in recent weeks is 58. Anti-government demonstrators want the president out and new elections. And the demands for political change are loudest in southern Peru, where the population is poor and largely indigenous. Here's NPR's Kerry Khan. Protesters shout insults about current President Dina Boluarte as they march around the stunning downtown plaza in Cusco, the colonial city perched 11,000 feet high in the Peruvian Andes. We're from here. We're not terrorists, they chant, as a steady rain soaks them in Cusco's cobblestone streets. Buluarte, who's been in power since her predecessor was arrested and impeached last month, is unmoved. She recently doubled down, calling protesters pawns of drug traffickers, illegal miners, and terrorist groups bent on creating chaos in the country. Protesters have dug in, too. They're blocking roads and disrupting commerce from Cusco down through the Sacred Valley all the way to the Incan ruins of Machu Picchu, leaving the small towns along that usually bustling tourist trail desolate. Especially in Ollantaytambo. Here, water from the river of the same name rushes through town and stone-lined irrigation canals. Most of the more than a million visitors a year heading to Machu Picchu stop here to catch the train that takes them through the mountains to the 15th century citadel. But for the past 10 days, the station has been shuttered. Only soldiers and police clad in riot gear are allowed inside. Nearby shops and restaurants are empty. Está triste, está silencio, prácticamente como para no aburrirnos o para de repente ocuparnos en algo. It's sad, it's so quiet, says 35-year-old Leonidas Flores. He says he and his wife Yoni keep opening their small restaurant off the central square out of habit. They don't know what else to do. Tratamos de sobrellevar las cosas para obtener un buen gobierno, ¿no? But Yoni says they're willing to muddle through this crisis if in the end they get a better government. Both say they weren't fans of former President Pedro Castillo, especially when he tried to dissolve Congress and rule by decree. They did hope his rural indigenous background would make him more sympathetic to their struggles. They're fed up with lawmakers like Buluarte and Congress, who they say only care about Lima. Juan Jupanc says the same. He heads one of the largest peasant and indigenous groups in Ollantaytambo. Wearing a wide-brimmed hat covered in long strips of pink and purple cloth, he says the government uses indigenous traditional farmers like him to impress tourists, but do little to help them prosper. Many along this route complain that the millions of annual tourist dollars don't go to them, but to large agencies, bus companies, and hotel owners. They're not looking for solutions or listening to our needs. He says the blockades are hurting the local economy, so they've decided to take the fight to Lima. But bus fare, food, lodging is going to cost. Sí. 
Señoras del mercado, por favor, un poquito de atención acá adelante, les vamos a suplicar. Those making the trip head to the town central market. One calls out to the vendors to come listen to their appeal. Pero esto es una causa justa, creo. Por eso, compañeros, vayamos a hacer un solo equipo, un solo trabajo. We have a just cause and we need to show our faces in Lima, says Rogelio Valdez Solis, another local indigenous leader. Women dig into their well-worn aprons, handing over 10 and 20 soles notes, about three to six dollars. Un fuerte aplauso para el mercado, compañeros. Thousands from cities all over the south are doing the same, ratcheting up the pressure on Boluarte to step down. Indeed, she did call for new elections to be held this year. Over the weekend, though, Congress rejected it. Kerry Khan, NPR News, Ollantaytambo, Peru. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBOR. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, families of seniors with Alzheimer's and other forms of dementia are calling for more safeguards to protect the elderly from scams. It's 720. I'm Scott Simon. Are you thinking about trading in your car? Why not donate it to this station instead? We'll turn it into the programs you love. Just go to WBUR.org. I'm Tiziana Deering. Today on Radio Boston, women make up only 27% of STEM workers, despite being half the workforce. Well, the entire leadership team of MIT is now women. What do they plan to do about it? The president, chancellor, and provost of MIT join us. That's Radio Boston today at 11, only on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Mostly sunny today with a high near 48, cloudy tonight with a low near 30. There's a chance of rain overnight, then partly sunny tomorrow with a high near 35. Mostly sunny and a high of 32 on Wednesday. It's 40 degrees in Boston at 721. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Fisher Investments. Fisher Investments' team of specialists tailor portfolios to each client's long-term goals. Learn more at fisherinvestments.com. Investments in securities involve the risk of loss. From Melville Charitable Trust, committed to ensuring all people have a safe, stable, and affordable home that allows them to thrive. Information about ways to prevent and solve homelessness is at melvilletrust.org. And from Carla Itzkovich, whose gift in memory of Moises Itzkovich, founder of the Moises Itzkovich Foundation, helps provide public radio news and information to communities around the world. This is NPR. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm e. Martinez. And I'm Steve Inskeep. Good morning. By 2030, an estimated 9 million Americans will be living with some sort of dementia. They will need health care and social support and also consumer financial protection. That's because people with dementia are at risk for losing control of their money. As Sarah Bowden of WESA in Pittsburgh explains, these problems can even be an early symptom of illness. Angela Reynolds pulls out faded photos of her childhood home in New Haven, Connecticut. I don't know if you can tell here, but the blinds right there, they go out to a deck that she had built onto the house. This house was a point of family pride. When her mom bought it for $20,000 in 1966, she became one of the first black homeowners in that part of town. 
So this should have been a legacy for so many different reasons. But her family no longer owns this house. And Reynolds blames the ravages of Alzheimer's because her mom began to forget to pay the mortgage. And we lost it. Reynolds had been living in another state and thought her mom was doing fine. By the time she stepped in, it was too late to stop the foreclosure. Her mom had been withdrawing large amounts of cash but wasn't paying her bills. And for some reason, she had refinanced the mortgage to a much higher interest rate. Reynolds thinks her mom might have been exploited, but there's no way to know. Dementia specialists say money problems can be one of the first signs of trouble. Robin Hilzebeck is a neuropsychologist at the UT Austindale Medical School. It's not uncommon for the first sign is, you know, my loved one was scammed out of several hundred or thousands of dollars. Hilzebeck says errors in money management can help reveal the kind of dementia a person has. For example, when it comes to the leading cause of dementia, Alzheimer's disease. That's the one where it's really rapid forgetting. Including that they need to pay their bills. Lewy body dementia creates fluctuating cognition. So in the morning, a person might be perfectly capable of writing a check. Later in the day, they may not be able to do it. Someone with vascular dementia can have issues with their processing speed. So it's easier to confuse them and defraud them. And frontal temporal dementia creates behavior changes. They're disinhibited, impulsive. They do things like you would never ever have thought they would do before. And their families come in and say, oh my gosh. Research shows how financial issues are both caused by and sometimes predictive of dementia. One study of some 81,000 Medicare recipients found that people with Alzheimer's disease and related dementias started to develop poor credit up to six years before their diagnosis. At first, dementia can be pernicious. Early signs are often subtle and hard to recognize. Sharon Gwynn, who lives in Pittsburgh, was at the grocery store when she got an early clue that something was wrong with her husband. Her credit card was declined. And I was like, no, 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 there's thousands of dollars in that account. Initially, Sharon thought her identity had been stolen. What actually happened was worse. The night before, her husband of 28 years, Richard, had racked up a $3,000 tab in a Pittsburgh bar, buying rounds for strangers. So I was completely crushed. Richard was showing the first signs of Louis body dementia. Before he got sick, Sharon says her husband had been the kind of guy who only bought used cars, which he kept until they rusted apart. At the time of the bar incident, Richard was seemingly normal, except for money. He drove for years after his financial awareness was gone. Neurologists say someone with early-stage dementia may seem perfectly functional in some areas of daily living, while other aspects, such as finances, spin out of control. These people are frequent targets of scams or outright theft, sometimes by strangers, sometimes by family members. Now Sharon is a widow, but she still worries about losing her savings if she gets dementia. I do not want my children to be responsible for taking care of me. What I have, I want my money to be spent for my care, and I don't want to burden them. Sharon pays a monthly fee for a service that monitors for unusual spending, like huge bar tabs, across all of her accounts. And she's designated power of attorney to her eldest daughter. Unlike Sharon, a lot of people are not reckoning with the possibility that they could one day develop dementia. Matt Lundquist specializes in financial family therapy. 
what we discover in being close to people who are struggling with something like dementia is the ways that money can represent stability, control, power, autonomy, and safety. Some people may assume they don't need to talk to their family about money because their bank or brokerage firm is looking out for them. But advocates say the financial industry could be doing a lot more. In 2016, the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau made a set of recommendations for companies to better protect the wealth of seniors. These included employee training and tweaks to fraud detection systems. But Naomi Karp, who worked at the Bureau at that time, says little was done. We would have meetings repeatedly with some of the largest banks, and they gave a lot of lip service to these issues. But when it came right down to it, change is very, very slow. There's at least one regulation that seems to help. Brokerage firms are required to try to get clients to name so-called trusted contacts. The contact gets alerted if something concerning is going on with their loved one's money. But at most financial institutions, this safeguard is limited to brokerage accounts. It's not offered for checking and savings accounts. For Angela Reynolds, she wishes the bank had alerted her that her mom had stopped paying the mortgage on the family house in New Haven. I fully believe that they noticed signs, but there was nothing in place at that time. Today, that home is owned by U.S. Bank. It's valued at more than $200,000. That's money Reynolds could have used to pay for her mother's care. For NPR News, I'm Sarah Bowden in Pittsburgh. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up here on Morning Edition, Lunar New Year celebrations in California this year included tributes to Brandon Tsai, the man who disarmed the Monterey Park gunman. And a top official at the Department of Energy explains how the government plans to secure the nation's energy grid after recent attacks. It's 7.30. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. Democratic lawmakers in Tennessee are expected to introduce legislation in response to the death of a black man days after a traffic stop in Memphis. Video released by the city's police shows officers tasing and beating Tyree Nichols, who later died of his injuries. NPR's Joe Hernandez has more. NBC News reports that, among other things, they plan to push for police training and mental health services, as well as reevaluating the need for low-level traffic stops. It's Democrats who plan to introduce these bills, but Republicans control both houses of the state's legislature. The five officers involved in Nichols' traffic stop and arrest have since been fired. Each faces charges that include second-degree murder. Later this week, the House will hold its first hearing since Republicans regained control of the chamber. Here's NPR's Claudia Crisales. 
Kentucky Congressman James Comer, who chairs the House Oversight Committee, said they'll focus this first hearing on spending during the pandemic. This as Comer's counterpart on House Judiciary, Ohio Congressman Jim Jordan will hold their first hearing on what they've dubbed as, quote, Biden's border crisis. This is part of the GOP's larger probe into concerns surrounding immigration and security at the U.S.-Mexico border. And both hearings are slated for Wednesday morning. That same day, House Speaker Kevin McCarthy will meet with President Biden to talk about the debt ceiling. This is NPR News. From WBOR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Boston officials say the police killing of Tyree Nichols in Memphis underscores the need for police reform here at home. At a Lunar New Year celebration yesterday, Mayor Michelle Wu said city leaders are committed to police accountability and transparency. We have work to do as everywhere else, but... The reaction that I heard universally from within our police department, within our community, within every corner of, of the partnerships that we have here was just disgust and horror. Boston created a new Office of Police Accountability following the death of George Floyd. But advocates say it must be more aggressive in investigating police misconduct. Boston will conduct its annual homeless census tonight to determine how many people are living outside and in shelters. WBUR's Lynn Jolliger has more. City employees and volunteers will hit the streets close to midnight. They'll offer people rides to shelter and medical attention. The city's assistant director of street homelessness initiatives, Jim Green, says census takers' questions about how long a person has been homeless and where they last had housing are optional. It really centers on people approaching with respect and a certain degree of humility in the presence of people whose situation is in some ways all too public and too much of a fishbowl throughout the year. The information gathered helps the government develop programs to fight homelessness. Last year's count found a drop in homelessness among solo adults, but an increase among families. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Lynn Jolliker. New Hampshire's Republican governor says he's considering a run for president. Chris Nunu tells CNN he doesn't have a timeline for when he'll make a formal decision. His comments came a day after former President Donald Trump made a campaign stop in New Hampshire. It's 7.33. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by UMass Chan Medical School. Proud to be named one of Boston Globe's top places to work. Learn more at umassmed.edu slash globe. The Bruins lost their third straight game last night. They fell to the Hurricanes 4-1 to in Raleigh. The Bees will visit the Toronto Maple Leafs on Wednesday before heading into the All-Star break. Mostly sunny and near 50 today. Cloudy with temperatures falling as low as 30 tonight. A chance of rain overnight. Tomorrow, a mix of sun and clouds and much colder only in the low to mid 30s. Mostly sunny and low 30s on Wednesday. It's 40 degrees in Boston at 734. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Easy Cater, committed to helping companies from nonprofits to the Fortune 500 find food for meetings and team lunches, tax-exempt ordering and delivery nationwide at easycater.com. From Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. 
It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep in Washington, D.C. And I'm A. Martinez in Culver City, California. Officials in Alhambra, California, are praising a man for his heroism. They say that 26-year-old Brandon Sy prevented a gunman who had killed 11 people and injured 10 in nearby Monterey Park a little over a week ago from carrying out a second attack in their town. Sy was honored yesterday at a Lunar New Year event. NPR's Emma Bowman reports. A couple hundred people packed under a tent on the rainy afternoon. They were there to watch local leaders recognize Sai on stage, where the Alhambra police chief presented him with a medal of courage. Uh, bear with me for a moment. I'm quite new to this. I want to thank the city of Alhambra for this great honor. The event happened just around the corner from the Lai Lai Ballroom studio, where Sai had rested an assault-style handgun out of the hands of the mass shooter. Sai thanked his family and community for their support. Their encouragement, Sai says, has given him the space to reflect. I realized that life is fragile. I feel that we as a community just spend our precious time reaching out to one another Becky Pang, a 41-year-old Alhambra resident in the crowd, held up a sign that read, Brandon Sai is our hero. I live a few minutes from here. I had to be here. As soon as I saw Brandon was going to be on the list, I wanted to see him in person. A real superhero, a real Asian superhero. But Sai wants to refocus the attention on the Monterey Park victims, most of whom he said he knew personally and considered them friends. They were some of the most caring people I have ever met. And for them to be taken from us is such an excruciating experience. I wish for all the victims' families to be able to heal. I pray for them to be able to find joy again. But he also wants the public to do what they can to make sure there are no more lives lost to gun violence. I want everyone to take the time to grieve, to mourn, to recover. But after... I want us, the people of this nation, to take action. Sai says his moment in the spotlight has been surreal, and it's far from dimming. He'll be attending the State of the Union next week as President Biden's guest of honor. Emma Bowman, NPR News in Alhambra. How secure is the power grid that delivers electricity to your home? Maybe even is powering this signal right now to you. Federal authorities are trying to answer that question after last year's attacks on substations. Somebody shot up a substation in North Carolina and knocked out power to tens of thousands of people. Other attacks struck stations in the Pacific Northwest. This is just one of the threats on the mind of Piyush Kumar of the U.S. Department of Energy. We're going to use all of this information to inform how do we build a grid that is more resilient in the future, because we recognize how important the availability of power and other sources of energy are to everyone across the country. I'm trying to think about what resiliency means from a layman's perspective. I suppose it could mean building a higher wall around your substation so it can't quite so easily be attacked. But I guess it might also mean redundancy, right? Making sure that if somebody does blow up a substation, there's another way to get power where it needs to go. Absolutely. The reality is there's a lot of different substations. There's over 75,000 electric substations across the country. We need to take measures 
that look at the design of those specific substations, where they're geographically located. There are certainly mitigation measures such as walls. Um, in some cases, that works well, but in other cases, that could actually be uh, that might not work well just from an engineering standpoint where these substations are very high voltage environments. There's a lot of heat. Oh, meaning if you physically wall it off and put a roof over it, it might create other problems, overheating or any number of other things. You know, you have these transformers. These transformers are very large pieces of equipment and you know, you have to make sure that they can be cooled. What are those measures that would actually buy down the risk? I'm thinking about how these physical attacks on the grid only had a local effect. And I'm also thinking about the difficulty of taking down the entire grid physically. Russia has spent months in Ukraine attacking the power grid, and they've certainly done damage and shut out the lights from time to time, but they have not permanently taken down the power grid. Apparently, that's very hard. But is it possible that through a cyber attack, someone could cause massive disruption through the power grid? The U.S. electric grid is actually very resilient. And in many ways, given the sheer number of electric utilities we have in the United States, we have over 3,000 electric utilities. So it's a very complex electric grid uh, that does take a lot of sophisticated hardware and software to make all of this work. With that said, we also have to take into account that the cyber risks are increasing constantly because as we become more connected, more digitally controlled, that does introduce a cyber risk that we have to start to manage. Are you surprised that there has not been an electrical grid equivalent of the attack on the Colonial Pipeline not so long ago where hackers targeted a pipeline and shut it down for a period? It certainly was a cyber incident, but it was also Colonial proactively shutting down their pipeline. I think you're reassuring me that the Colonial Pipeline incident wasn't quite as grave a threat as it seemed at the time, although it certainly was disruptive. But the question still stands, is it possible for a ransomware attacker or a foreign actor like Russia to seize some part of the electrical grid in that way or disrupt it? We know that certain actors have an interest and capabilities that could impact portions of the energy sector. I wouldn't also downplay the colonial incident because it did have an impact to the availability of fuel across the country. And therefore, we should be looking at how we ensure really the security and resilience of these systems as we see the cyber threats continuing to grow exponentially. Is it possible there has not been a massively effective attack on the power grid because it is actually harder than it might seem? We're seeing capabilities continue to increase. And so we have to make sure that we are ready before anything like that ever could happen. But this goes back to something you said earlier, Steve. How do we build in these systems with resiliency and redundancy in mind? How do we use engineering techniques to, um, if something does affect a portion of the electric grid, other portions don't go down as a result of that? Hush Kumar is director of the Office of Cybersecurity, Energy Security, and Emergency Response. Thanks so much. Thanks so much, Steve. This afternoon on All Things Considered, seven states that share the waters of the Colorado River have until tomorrow to agree on water cutbacks or the federal government will do it for them. Stream NPR on your smartphone or computer or just listen on the radio. This is NPR News. 
Coming up next on Morning Edition, the chair of the Massachusetts GOP is about to run for re-election, but after failures and scandals, some party members are wondering if it's time for a change. And in your forecast, just a few clouds today and temperatures will be in the upper 40s, cloudy tonight and in the low 30s. Overnight, there's a chance of rain and tomorrow we return to the 30s. It'll be partly sunny. Right now, it's 40 degrees in Boston at 743. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Road Scholar, creating educational travel adventures for adults around the world. Learn more at roadscholar.org slash learning. Now, in business news, buying a home is often considered a good investment. But in Boston, renters are saving big compared to buyers, at least in the short term. A new report from Realtor.com shows that in December, renters in Boston saved $2,000 a month compared to the average first-time home buyer. The website says savings for renters is partly because of skyrocketing mortgage rates. A new tech-based vet clinic is opening a new location in Newton Centner. It's called Small Door Veterinary. It's the first one to open outside of the clinic's New York City locations. The Boston Globe reports the company also plans to open a location in Brookline by the end of the year. It's 744. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Boston Symphony Orchestra. Seek something new with the BSO's current season. Thrilling music and world-class performers await. Learn more today at bso.org. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. I'm Rupa Shinhoi. Massachusetts Republicans failed to field a single successful candidate for statewide office last November. Now the party finds itself at a crossroads. Incumbent Chairman Jim Lyons is hoping to be elected to a third term tomorrow night. But WBUR's Steve Brown reports that discontent among some Republicans, along with financial woes in the party, may cost the former state rep his job. Republican Party Chair Jim Lyons makes no apologies for being a staunch conservative in a liberal-leaning state like Massachusetts. Here he is speaking to party members in Worcester in a video posted online by the Grafton Republican Town Committee. The only way we're going to make long-term change in Massachusetts is to stand for the things we believe in. Yeah, I am unabashedly pro-life, and I'm proud to say it. I stand for freedom, and I'm proud to say it. I'm against this woke agenda, and I'm proud to say it. And I will never, ever Lyons has been a strong supporter of former President Donald Trump and claims the party woes are not because of his leadership. He blames the centrist party members who supported former Governor Charlie Baker and says they're out to undermine his agenda. So far, we know that the Baker people have invested all kinds of money because they want to silence you. Silence me. Are they going to silence you people? No. No. No, They're not going to silence me either. The number of GOP elected officials dwindled in the four years Lyons has been chair. This includes losing last November by a wide margin in races for the only statewide offices held by Republicans, governor and lieutenant governor. The party also saw a pair of sheriff seats as well as the Cape and Islands District Attorney's Office switch to the control of Democrats, and Republicans have lost at least nine seats in the state legislature since Lyons took control of the party. 
Auburn State Representative Paul Frost, who is a voting member of the state Republican committee, lays the blame on Lyons. He says the future of the state party is in the balance. I think if we continue on with Jim Lyons, that we're going to have even more infighting. We're going to have a chairman who's going to advocate and push for primaries against sitting elected Republicans, particularly state representatives. The concerns go beyond incumbent Republicans facing primaries and losing elections. The party's treasurer, Pat Crawley, has raised concerns about opposition research into now Governor Mara Healey conducted during last year's gubernatorial campaign. Crowley showed other Republicans copies of emails and invoices that suggest Lyons may have coordinated with a political action committee and wealthy donors to pay for the research. Such coordination would be a violation of state campaign finance laws. WBUR has repeatedly reached out to Lyons through the party but did not hear back. State committee woman Amy Carnavale says she is concerned about the party's finances. It appears uh, that our party may in fact be in the red um, and owe money to vendors. Carnavale is one of several candidates planning to challenge Lyons for the chairmanship this week. She says the party needs change at the top. Under the current leadership, the party has gone in a direction that has not been helpful to winning elections. So we need to get back to basics. We need to communicate a message that is welcoming and uh, attractive for recruiting both candidates and donors to the party. So that would be my highest priority if I am elected chair. It's not unusual for a political party to do some soul-searching following election losses. Bridgewater State University political professor Brian Frederick says clashes within parties have been going on for a long time. It's sort of the classic purist versus pragmatist sort of approach, and uh, that especially occurs when parties are out of power, when they're not currently occupying very many positions of power and see themselves locked out. It will ultimately be up to the 74 members of the Republican State Committee to determine the leadership of the party. They'll gather in Marlboro Tuesday night, and the vote will be by secret ballot. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Steve Brown. in Boston. There's another hour of Morning Edition coming up, and later today at 11 is Radio Boston. Tiziana Deering is here to give us a preview of the show. Good morning, Tiziana. How are you doing? Great, Rupa. How are you this morning at the beginning of the week? Oh, it's Monday. Oh, well. So listen, I know, I hear you. I will flag, having just heard Steve Brown's story there, we'll do more on that tomorrow in advance of the vote and then do some analysis, whatever happens on Wednesday and what it's going to mean for the Massachusetts State mm-hmm. GOP. So there will be more on Radio Boston on that. Uh, today we are bringing a conversation we had at the end of the week last week, because that's when we could get them all in the same room, with the president, provost, and chancellor of MIT who are all women now to dive into what that means for their leadership and what they're doing at the institution. Did they they talk about the Globe spotlight that came out over the weekend? Great question. No, it hadn't come out yet. Um, uh, So it didn't, as you said, didn't come out till the weekend, but we talked to them towards the end of the week last week. But we probed on all those issues, women in research, discrimination and harassment in science, women students. So a lot of relevant conversation nonetheless. Okay. What else? Uh, We're also going to start a series with uh, players from the New England 
Revolution, learning the sport and learning them. Just a blast of a player named Henry Kessler, and we'll bring that conversation. Sounds like fun. Thank you, Tiziana. That's Radio Boston today at 11. It's 7.50. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Indeed, a hiring platform designed to streamline the candidate search process. Businesses attract, screen, and interview candidates all from the employer dashboard. More at Indeed.com slash NPR. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Z-Quil Pure Z's Gummies, designed with melatonin for occasional sleeplessness to help people fall asleep naturally. Learn more at ZQuill.com. This is NPR. A lot of us talk to our cars when we're driving. In my case, it's mostly me saying, come on, come on, come on, please start. If your car's like that, then maybe it's time for a new conversation. Hey, I'm Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. Let's talk about donating your car, your old or unwanted car, whatever it is. It can be turned into Morning Edition, Wait, Wait, or Snap Judgment. Trust me, your car will understand. Here's how. Just go to WBUR.org. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Amy Martinez. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Leila Faldil. Singer-songwriter Matt Butler says he's performed for incarcerated people in more than 50 prisons and jails across the country. He's not just telling them stories through song. Sometimes he gets to hear the inmates' stories, too. How they got there, how they cope. Butler's written a few of those moments into a new one-man show. It's called Reckless Son. Don't try to lie or to pretend Everybody knew that I would end up here again Matt Butler says he started playing for incarcerated audiences at the Albany County Correctional Facility in New York, and he had no idea what he was getting into. It was an intimidating experience. I found myself walking through these long corridors and these various security checkpoints and these big metal bar doors slamming behind me. And I definitely thought to myself, how did I get into this? <laughs> you know, like, like, what is about to happen? It turned out to be just this really wonderful, beautiful experience. When you say it was a wonderful and beautiful reaction, I mean, what does that look like? Were they relating to the lyrics? Is it a moment of freedom? I mean, these are people who don't have their freedom to walk around, to go to a concert. I mean, what was it that made it wonderful? I keep in mind that they're not necessarily choosing to hear my music either. You know, that's something that in, to some degree is like being sort of foisted upon them. And I try <laughs> to, I try to be uh, humble about that. There was a lot of smiling and laughing, but also reflection. And like you said, I think there was some relating and there was some identification that took place. And one of the things that sort of made the experience so valuable for me was that I was able to have sort of a conversation. I asked them questions and they asked me questions. And I think that the music is almost what like allows for some sort of like intimacy to take place. And I would say that I'm still learning So is there like one anecdote that is an example of you learning something, relating in a different way, a mistake? Yeah, um, there's a song on the beginning of the record called Time to Be a Man. I wrote that and I was very, very nervous about performing that for an incarcerated audience for the first time.
I was afraid that it would come off as me scolding them mm -hmm. in some degree. And that is sort of the last thing I would ever want to do in that situation is sort of rubbing their nose in something. You know, like if anybody is aware of the situation that they're in, it's them. When I played it, one of them who was, I would say, was a pretty intimidating guy. Like I'm kind of on the small side and mm -hmm. this individual was well over six feet and had a mohawk but the mohawk wasn't done up with gel it was like just sort of hanging off the side of his face and he, yeah, it just, he had a look yeah yeah <laughs> he had a well cultivated look and he looked at me and I, I know we're probably not allowed to use profanity in this program but he said hey man that song really effed with me uh, and the look he gave me it just looked like he was gonna tear my head off and I was kind of like uh-oh when he said it, I was looking around to see how- Where's the exit? <laughs> you know, like where, is there someone here that could get to me before he does? And the exact opposite of what I thought was gonna happen, happened. Do you make money? Do you get paid for these games? No. Yeah, so, I was thinking like, how do you survive, Matt Butler? <laughs> yeah, well, I've, I've had to be adaptable. Um, <laughs> typically I would be on tour and a lot of times I was doing private events. And what would end up happening was that like, people would see where I was gonna be based on social media. And wherever I was, a lot of people would reach out and say, hey, if you're gonna be in this town for this gig or this city for this gig, would you mind also maybe playing at the county jail during the day. So I would do one show that I was getting paid for in order to do three or four that I was doing for free. When you do these performances, do you often get to have one-on-one -on -one interactions, conversations with the incarcerated individuals that you're performing for? Yes, it's very different each time. In all of those situations, I try to interact as much as I can. Some of those scenarios lend themselves to interaction more than others. There's a song called Been Gone So Long. It's, you know, I remember just hearing a guy saying how hard it was for him to make it to his job interviews and his probation and parole appointments because he didn't have a car and he didn't have a driver's license. And uh, he lived in somewhat rural West Virginia traveling was very difficult for him to you know make it to these different places and he just didn't have a license early in the morning i go looking for work i bum right since i lost my car i hit a couple miles to my p.o just to tell him no luck so far and to me that was sort of this moment of like insight into the entire experience of re-entry and just the incredible amount of obstacles that people face when they are no longer incarcerated, but they're trying to make their way back into society and to, and to stay out of jail. Yeah. And the factors that can really be problematic for them and lead to recidivism. My sense is that it's very easy for the incarcerated to feel forgotten or neglected or unseen. And I think that sometimes just the simple act of showing up to say, hey, I'm here to spend some time with you is something that like right off the rip is really appreciated by them. So my sense really is that like the best audiences I've ever played for have been in jails and in prison. I'm praying for rain. I'm 
Matt Butler turned his experience performing music in prisons into a new one-man show called Reckless Son. Thank you so much, Matt. Thank you, Layla. I really appreciate it. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Layla Falden. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm A. Martinez. A relatively warm day today before it cools down for the rest of the week. Upper 40s today and mostly sunny. Clouds move in tonight as it falls to the low 30s. Rain possible overnight, then partly sunny and only in the mid-30s tomorrow. Low 30s and mostly sunny on Wednesday. It's 40 degrees in Boston and we're coming up on 8 o'clock. I'm here and now host Scott Tong, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. At least 27 people are dead and 120 wounded in an explosion at a mosque in northwestern Pakistan in the worst attack in the country in months. It's Monday, January 30th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Calls are growing for police reform across the country and in Boston as the nation continues to react to the video of the brutal police beating death of Tyree Nichols. A black man can be in a car get stopped by police and could die. I'm tired of it. Also this hour, Secretary of State Antony Blinken calls for calm in Israel amid a spike in violence. Blinken will be meeting Israeli and Palestinian leaders, trying to get them to cooperate. He's going to have a very tough time doing that. And House Republicans launch committee hearings to investigate Democrats. Partly sunny in the 40s today. It's 8.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. Violence continues to surge as Secretary of State Antony Blinken begins a two-day visit to Israel and the West Bank. NPR's Peter Kenyon reports the latest fatality is a Palestinian killed at an Israeli checkpoint in the West Bank city of Hebron. The Palestinian Ministry of Health says this month has been the bloodiest in the West Bank since 2015. In a statement, the ministry said, quote, The bullets of the occupation army and settlers have killed 35 people, including eight children, in addition to an elderly woman. The latest fatality is described as a 26-year-old man reportedly shot in the head at an Israeli checkpoint in Hebron. The Israeli Defense Force says the man was shot while trying to escape. The Ministry of Health statement adds that the governorate of Jenin in the northern West Bank had the largest number of fatalities with 20. The announcement comes as Secretary Blinken called for calm and reaffirmed support for a two-state solution. Peter Kenyon, NPR News, Jerusalem. Civil rights activists and politicians are calling for police reform on the federal level in the wake of the police beating death of Memphis motorist Tyree Nichols. But not all lawmakers agree. NPR's Marie Andrusevich reports that includes the chair of the Republican-led House Judiciary Committee. Speaking on NBC's Meet the Press, Republican Congressman Jim Jordan said it was difficult to watch video of the fatal attack, but that legislation isn't the solution. What strikes me is just the lack of respect for human life. Um, so I don't know that any law, any training, any reform is going to change. You know, they, 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 this man was handcuffed. They continued to beat him. Some lawmakers and activists are calling for the passage of the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act, which, among other measures, would ban chokeholds and federal no-knock warrants. 
Maria Andrusevich, NPR News, Washington. Meanwhile, officials with the Congressional Black Caucus say they have invited the parents of slain motorist Tyree Nichols to attend President Biden's State of the Union address next month. They say the parents have accepted. Separately, another lawmaker has invited Los Angeles area dance hall manager Brandon Tsai to the event. It was Tsai who disarmed a gunman in Alhambra near Monterey Park earlier this month and prevented a second mass shooting. Tsai was honored yesterday at a Lunar New Year event for his bravery. He told the crowd that the victims who were killed were friends of his. I want everyone to take the time to grieve, to mourn, to recover. But after, I want us, the people of this nation, to take action. That audio is courtesy of ABC7 Los Angeles. The National Weather Service says a significant ice storm is going to affect a large swath of the country this week from Texas to Tennessee. There are ice storm warnings already posted in Arkansas, Mississippi, and western Tennessee. You're listening to NPR News from Washington. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Ministers and Black Boston Black Churches yesterday addressed the brutal beating of Tyree Nichols by Memphis police officers. At the Morning Star Baptist Church in Mattapan, Minister Marvin Vinay remarked on the fact that the five officers involved are black. The unfortunate of this circumstance is that it was done by people that look like us. And I want to be honest with you, that hurt. It hurt at the core. Coming up at 8.30 here on Morning Edition, we'll hear from Boston's mayor and police commissioner for their reaction to the video and how they plan to push forward with police reform here. Violence against healthcare workers in Massachusetts is on the rise. According to the Massachusetts Health and Hospital Association, there is an assault or threat at a healthcare facility every 38 minutes. WBUR's Priyanka Dayal McCluskey reports hospitals are responding with new codes of conduct designed to keep their staff safe. Hospital leaders say the new policies will ban offensive, abusive, and discriminatory language and behaviors. Any patient who violates the rules could be asked to leave. Steve Walsh is the hospital association's president. It's necessary because the acts of violence are increasing, both here in the Commonwealth and across the country, and it's absolutely unacceptable. And our caregivers are working so hard in the most trying times, and as most of the public has moved on from the pandemic, our hospitals and caregivers have not had an opportunity to do that. Healthcare and labor leaders are also pushing for legislation to strengthen safety in hospitals. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Priyanka Dayal McCluskey. Legalized sports betting begins tomorrow in Massachusetts. Starting tomorrow morning, people can place bets at the state's three casinos. UMass Amherst researcher Rachel Volberg studies problem gambling. She calls the expansion of sports betting across the country remarkable. The speed with which it's happened suggests that there's going to be some re-evaluation in the not-distant future. I hope that re-evaluation will include establishing some kind of monitoring system. Other in-person sports books are expected to open in the state soon. Betting over mobile apps is expected to begin in March. Teachers are on strike this morning in Woburn. Their union couldn't reach an agreement with the school committee yesterday after months of negotiations. Both groups returned to the bargaining table later this morning, but school is canceled for today. It's 8.06. 
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Metro West Subaru, where same-day and next-day service appointments are available. Service until 9 on Route 9 in Natick. The Bruins lost to the Hurricanes 4-1 to last night in North Carolina. That's three losses in a row for Boston. The Bees will visit the Toronto Maple Leafs on Wednesday. Partly sunny today with a high in the mid 40s, mostly cloudy tonight with a chance for rain. It'll be in the lower 30s. Clouds give way to sun tomorrow, mid-30s. It should stay dry through Saturday. It's 40 degrees in Boston at 8.07. WBUR supporters include the Joyce Foundation, committed to advancing racial equity and economic mobility for the next generation in the Great Lakes region. Learn more at JoyceFDN.org. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep in Washington, D.C. And I'm A. Martinez in Culver City, California. It's worth noting what is not the news this morning. We do not have news that some people feared of violence in response to police videos. Memphis authorities released four videos on Friday night. They show a traffic stop where police seized and beat Tyree Nichols. The 29-year-old later died. The nonviolent response allows us to focus on a different question, how to address the repeated police use of excessive force. NPR's Michelle Martin hosts Weekends on All Things Considered. She's in Memphis. Michelle, you got there the day after the footage was released. How are people feeling? Well, a range of emotions, as you might expect, A. Many people feel hurt and angry. Some people told us that they were ashamed that Memphis is in the national spotlight for this. Memphis, of course, being where the Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated, and more recently where there have been a number of really scary street crimes that have also made the national news. But what I frankly did not expect was the number of people who recounted similar, very frightening encounters with Memphis police. And I'm not just talking about demeaning language like being cursed at for a very little reason, which is bad enough. We're talking about people who spoke of having their doors broken down by police who had the wrong address on a warrant. We're talking about family members being treated so roughly after being stopped for minor traffic issues that they needed medical treatment. It was really disturbing to hear how common an experience it was for many of the people we spoke with. You also attended a a church service. So where'd you wind up going? Well, we visited an historic church with a majority black congregation, Centenary United Methodist Church. A lot of people still travel quite a distance to attend, even if they've moved farther away. And the bishop was making a special visit there yesterday, so it was a big turnout there. And a lot of people told us that the killing of Tyree Nichols, as terrible as it was, is giving them the motivation to recommit to the kind of work they know needs to be done anyway. Here's Courtney Davis. He's a lifelong congregant of this church, and he said police reform is only part of it. We have to start at the root of the problem, and that's educational equality, financial opportunities, and start to create an environment for the citizens that are here and the ones that hadn't even made it to the earth yet. Well, it sounds like Memphis is almost starting over, at least that's where their mindset seems to be. What about uh, elected leaders in Memphis? What are they saying? Well, we talked with a veteran congressman who represents much of the city, Steve Cohen. And we also talked with a young environmental activist who just got elected to the Tennessee State House in a special election, Justin Pearson. Uh, he's going to be sworn in just a couple of days from now. They're both Democrats, and they both talked about wanting to move forward with legislation that would require things like better and more consistent reporting of abusive police behavior, more accountability, addressing training and culture. Now, you can't help but notice that both of these lawmakers are now in the 
the minority in their respective legislative bodies. And these, this kind of uh, legislative moves have not necessarily been seen as a priority uh, for the Republicans who control both chambers that they are in. But Pearson said even though he's young, he's had tough fights before and come out on top, uh, like his fight to ensure that an oil pipeline isn't built over an aquifer here in Memphis. It started with a pipeline fight. But that turned into three laws that we passed in Shelby County and in Memphis. And we changed the law in Tennessee that would have been totally pro-pipeline. Like We know that this works, but it takes persistent and engaged and activated constituents. That's NPR's Michelle Martin in Memphis, Tennessee. Michelle, thanks. You're welcome. Secretary of State Antony Blinken is visiting Jerusalem this week. The original plan was to meet with leaders of Israel's new right-wing government. Blinken now has more to discuss because of days of recent violence. Last week, Israel carried out its deadliest raid in the West Bank in years. Israeli forces killed several militants and a 61-year-old woman. Then on Friday, a Palestinian gunman killed at least seven people outside a Jerusalem synagogue. NPR's Daniel Estrin joins us now from Tel Aviv. Uh, Daniel, first of all, why is Antony Blinken even there? Well, he was in Cairo meeting leaders there. The core of his visit, though, is meeting the new prime minister in Israel, Benjamin Netanyahu, to coordinate how the U.S. will work with Israel's new right-wing government. And there's a lot to discuss. First, what to do about Iran with the nuclear talks stalled. The Wall Street Journal and The New York Times are reporting that Israel bombed a compound in Iran this weekend. And today the U.S. is warning about attacks on synagogues and other places in Istanbul. So that's one thing. Netanyahu also wants the U.S. to help broker a diplomatic agreement between Israel and Saudi Arabia. But, you know, the U.S. has its own concerns. It's concerned about the far-right makeup of Israel's new government, its plans to legalize more settlements in the occupied West Bank. But overshadowing everything is the wave of violence here these last few days. Yeah, so taking account everything you just told us, what's the mood like there? Hey, I met an Israeli family in shock. They were sitting on the floor, sitting Shiva, the Jewish mourning tradition. There were a lot of visitors uh, when I was there, and I spoke with Tal Barashi. Her brother was in that apartment on the Sabbath heard gunshots, ran out to help with his wife, and they were both shot and killed. And his sister tells me she can't believe it. Israelis and Palestinians live intertwined in Jerusalem. Let's listen. We're all the same. We have two legs, two hands, two eyes, one heart. We're all together. Why we don't live together like a family? Why I need to sit here and cry about my brother. I asked her how she wants the Israeli government to respond. We suffer, they should suffer. We suffer, they should suffer. You know, Israel has sealed the home of the Palestinian attacker, promises to demolish the home. She says it's not enough. She wants the attacker's family to be exiled. So right now, we are hearing a lot of pressure on Israel's new far-right leaders to get tougher on Palestinians. The government is pursuing a lot of punitive actions. Israeli settlers have carried out reprisal attacks against Palestinians. We have also interviewed Palestinians, uh, including a friend of a 13-year-old who shot and wounded two Israelis this weekend in a different shooting, who called his friend a hero. After all the violence that Palestinians have experienced in recent days, 
Israeli troops killed one more man just today in the West Bank. So back to Secretary of State Blinken, what can he possibly do here? He's going to try to urge Palestinian leaders to restart their security cooperation with Israel. He's going to try to put some limits on Israel's right-wing government. But Israelis and Palestinians are hardened right now. Their leaders are too. It's a very inopportune moment for Blinken to calm things down. That's NPR's Daniel Estrin in Tel Aviv. Daniel, thanks. You're welcome. Ambassador Dennis Ross has been tracking the latest Mideast violence. He's been a Middle East envoy for the administrations of President George H.W. Bush and Bill Clinton, has followed these matters for a long time. Ambassador, welcome back. Nice to be with you. What are the dangers of this moment? Well, I think the biggest danger is this just spins out of control and we move into what might be the third intifada. Uh, if you recall, the second intifada was extremely violent, went on for four years. Over a thousand Israelis were killed, close to 35 or 3,600 Palestinians were killed. Uh, and in a sense, you just saw the territories and Israel itself become places where violence was the norm and normalcy was the exception. Well, I'm thinking about the response of Israel's government to this synagogue shooting on Friday. Authorities are preparing to smash the suspect's home, which is a thing that is done there sometimes. Netanyahu's government is talking of bills to make it easier for employers to fire Palestinians, easier to strip Palestinians of their citizenship. What do you think Netanyahu is driving at here? I think he's trying to demonstrate that he's doing something that's tough to satisfy, especially those Uh, within the right wing, the far right wing of his government, uh, those that in many ways uh, want to adopt adopt much more difficult, much harsher policies. They want to build new settlements. They want to build an area called E1. This is an area that strategically could separate the northern part of the West Bank from the southern part of the West Bank. It's been an issue going back to the time when I was our envoy that we would raise with the Israelis and say, This is an area that precludes any possible two-state outcome later on. So I think he's trying to forestall the kinds of actions that uh, he's being pressed to take and at the same time show he's acting in a way that will deter further violence or reduce the incentives for violence from the Palestinians. The problem in a case like this is steps he takes to try to create deterrence sometimes end up creating pressures on, on the Palestinians even to show that they can carry out more revenge attacks. And the, the real danger here is revenge attacks on both sides. You know, in the United States, we would see a mass shooting uh, like this terrible shooting at the synagogue. We would normally see it as the act of an individual. There may be a political context. There's likely a political aspect to it in terms of laws and so forth. But we see it broadly as an individual. How is it different in Israel, given the wider conflict there? Well, I think you got an indication of that, uh, even by what Daniel Estrange was reporting, how there were celebrations uh, throughout the West Bank in response to the killing of the seven coming out of the synagogue, uh, how the 13-year-old who the next morning, 13-year-old Palestinian the next morning, uh, who shot two Israelis, was called a hero by his friend. The creation of a sense of martyrdom uh, suggests that this is all about the struggle and resistance. And unfortunately, that's a culture right now. And the more the Israelis see it, the more they feel there's no alternative except to put more pressure on the Palestinians. So in a sense, you have the Secretary of State coming out there not to make peace, but to try to calm the situation down. I think the one thing he might try to do, we have a U.S. security coordinator, a three-star general, and he might seek to have him bring the security forces of both sides together to see what each of them might do in parallel to, to try to bring this not so much to end it because it's going to be very hard, but at least try to bring things under control. 
In a few seconds, do you think these two governments are on the same page, at least at this moment, regarding Iran? Uh, I think they're getting very close to being on the same page, principally because what Iran is doing to its own public and because Iran is providing weapons to the Russians. That puts the U.S. closer to the Israelis, I think, than they've been. Meaning that favoring confrontation with Iran and putting on a back burner any, any uh, resumption of a nuclear deal. I don't think they have much of a choice because the Iranians aren't showing much interest in such a deal. Ambassador, it's always a pleasure talking with you. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Former Middle East envoy Dennis Ross. He's at the Washington Institute for Near East Policy. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up on Morning Edition, a new weight loss drug is being called revolutionary, and it's getting a lot of buzz, but it's costly, and people seem to gain weight back when they stop taking it. It's 819. Turn your old car into new news. Support the programming you love by donating your vehicle to WBUR. Learn how at WBUR.org cars. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by ThoughtForms, custom builders of high-performance, healthy homes and places that strengthen our communities, supporting Climate Interactive's mission to help people everywhere create a sustainable and equitable future with their online climate solution simulator, climateinteractive.org and thoughtforms-corp.com. In 1987, the world banned a range of commonly used chemicals. It's being called an unprecedented display of international cooperation to protect the world's environment. The Montreal Protocol, signed today, aims at stopping the deterioration of the ozone layer in the atmosphere. And it worked. I'm Kimberly Atkins-Store. Is that a lesson for tackling climate change? That's On Point this morning at 10 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. This morning on WBOR.org, learn how people in Mattapan are trying to welcome in new development while also avoiding displacement and find out the science behind a home in Maine that, without a furnace, can be heated to 70 degrees inside, even in the dead of winter, and get answers to the five biggest questions gamers have for the new year. All that and more at WBUR.org and on the WBUR mobile app. You can also listen live. In your forecast, mostly sunny today with a high near 48, cloudy tonight with a low near 30. There's a chance of rain overnight, then partly sunny tomorrow with a high near 35, mostly sunny and a high of 32 on Wednesday. Right now it's 41 degrees in Boston at 821. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Vicks DayQuil Severe, a daytime cold and flu medication designed to relieve up to nine cold and flu symptoms. More at VIX.com. From the Katina Foundation, supporting the Asylum Seeker Advocacy Project, providing more than 100,000 asylum seekers in the U.S. with community and legal support. Learn more at asylum.news. From Progressive Insurance, with its Name Your Price tool, a way to see coverage options based on a driver's budget. Learn more at progressive.com or 1-800-PROGRESSIVE. Price and coverage match limited by state law. And from listeners like you, who donate to this NPR station. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Amy Martinez. And I'm Steve Inskeep. Many people are talking about the weight loss drug Wegovy. 
It was called a major breakthrough given how well it does work to reduce body weight, but this drug is extremely expensive, and when people can't afford to stay on it, they often experience rebound weight gain that is hard to stop. NPR's Allison Aubrey has been reporting on this. Hey there, Allison. Good morning, Steve. Who's eligible for this drug? Who's it for? Well, a lot of people are eligible. This is a drug for people who have a BMI or body mass index of 27 or higher and also have conditions related to obesity, so high blood pressure, high cholesterol, and that's millions of Americans. Uh, I spoke to Yolanda Hamilton. She works in a hospital ER. She's 51 years old, was struggling with prediabetes, hypertension. She recently lost 60 pounds on the drug, which is taken at home once a week by injection. Here she is. I was very surprised about how much weight I lost on Wigovi. And I was very surprised about how good I felt. Gave me more energy to do other things. Exercising, coming home from work and able to do house chores. So she was feeling a lot better and she lost all the weight in under a year. Is it clear that that is the normal experience? It works that well all the time. Yes, this drug really started to take off after the results of a big clinical trial were published in the New England Journal of Medicine almost two years ago. It showed people who took the drug for about 16 months lost about 15% of their body weight. So for a 200-pound person, that's 30 pounds. I spoke to Dr. Robert Kushner of Northwestern. He's one of the researchers on the study. He also serves on an advisory board at Novo Nordisk. That's the company that markets Wagovi. He says it was surprising. Some people lost even more. One third of individuals lost 20% or more of their body weight. Our mouths were really open. I've been involved in this field for over 40 years. We have never seen a medication that caused this amount of weight loss. So unprecedented results, he says, but what some don't realize is that once people start the drug, they may need to stay on it indefinitely, Steve. Otherwise, the research shows there's a rebound effect. People tend to gain most of the weight back within a year if they stop the medication. Meaning they would be stuck on this drug for life? Potentially, yes, in order to maintain the benefits. But given the cost of the drug, Steve, which is about $1,400 a month for people paying out of pocket, not everyone can stay on the medication. Yolanda Hamilton changed jobs, and with that, her health insurance has changed. Her new plan denied coverage of the drug. And very quickly, within just a few months, she's already gained 20 pounds back. I definitely wouldn't be able to afford the Wagobi at $1,400 a month. And I'm very frustrated about the weight coming back on in so little time. She says her cravings for sugar and fatty foods is back, and she's hungrier. But with the Wagobi, I had no taste for the bigger meals. And that really makes sense, Steve, given how this drug works. It basically mimics a hormone in our bodies that can help us feel full. So without the drug, the weight is coming back on, and she's now at risk of developing diabetes and heart disease if she continues to gain weight. Well, some people listening to that might say, well, I really shouldn't be starting this drug. Maybe I should be trying to change my diet myself or doing a little more exercise. You know, I think most people would like to lose weight by diet and exercise, but we live in a society where people are sedentary in part due to our jobs. Yolanda Hamilton sits eight hours a day at her job, and the unhealthiest foods are the cheapest foods. I mean, heart disease is the number one cause of death in the U.S., Steve, and obesity is a big risk factor. It can shave years off someone's life. 
I spoke to physician Marcus Schaubacher. He's CEO of ECRI. They're an independent nonprofit group that aims to make healthcare more equitable and more cost effective. His group has reviewed the evidence of these new weight loss drugs. And he says at a time when our society spends more than $170 billion a year on obesity related costs, these FDA approved medicines should be covered. Exercise and diet are key components of tackling obesity, but so are medications which have proven to be effective. But right now, coverage of Wagovi by insurance plans is pretty spotty. Yolanda Hamilton's doctor is helping her appeal the insurance company's denial, but this is tricky to do. Medicare does not pay for Wagovi, though increasingly there is pressure to change that. For now, what can people do if they are denied coverage? Well, I spoke to Carla Robinson. She's a family physician who is also a medical editor at GoodRx, a company that helps people find affordable prices for generic and brand medications. She points out that since there's no generic version of these weight loss drugs, they're very expensive. And even with coupons available from Novo Nordisk, the manufacturer, for now, without broad insurance coverage, the drugs are just out of reach for many people, especially among people with low incomes who experience obesity at disproportionately higher rates. Some of the people who need it the most are unable to access it. And so, yeah, we're talking about a a huge health equity issue. So there is momentum to push for change. What are the long-term safety effects of taking this drug for the rest of your life? Well, no drug comes without risks or side effects. The most common side effect with Wagovi are GI symptoms, so nausea, upset stomach. Dr. Kushner says they're usually temporary, fade away after a few months for most people. There's ongoing research to evaluate effects on the cardiovascular system, which so far have been positive. But I will point out the drug does carry a warning to inform people that in animal studies, thyroid tumors developed in some animals given the drug. Now, this has not been seen in people, but the drug is relatively new. Uh, So doctors do screen patients for risk factors linked to a specific kind of thyroid cancer. So bottom line, everyone needs to weigh the risks and benefits. I mean, this drug has gotten a lot of buzz from notables like Elon Musk tweeted about using Wagovi to slim down. Plenty of TikTok influencers. But Steve, this is not a drug for cosmetic weight loss. This is a drug for people whose health is at risk due to obesity. And Piers Allison Aubrey, thanks so much. Thank you, Steve. Support for NPR health coverage comes from Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement to support digestive health, containing a probiotic strain developed by gastroenterologists with 20 years of research. More at alignprobiotics.com. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up on Morning Edition, Tyree Nichols' brutal police beating death is leading to calls for reforms across the country, including here in Boston. And this week, Republicans launch committee hearings investigating the Biden administration. It's 829. Follow the news all day with WBUR. We're at 90.9 on the radio, online at WBUR.org or on the WBUR mobile app on your phone. WBUR supporters include Dana-Farber Brigham Cancer Center, where everyone on your team specializes in your type of cancer. Learn more at DanaFarberBrigham.org. And Celebrity Series, Broadway's Jessica Vosk pays tribute to Sondheim, Judy Garland, Elton John, and more February 5th at Symphony Hall. CelebritySeries.org. 
Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. Secretary of State Antony Blinken is in Israel today where he's urging Israelis and Palestinians to calm tensions following a series of deadly attacks in recent days. It's the responsibility of everyone to take steps to calm tensions rather than inflame them. To work toward a day when people no longer feel afraid in their communities, in their homes, in their places of worship. That is the only way to halt the rising tide of violence that has taken too many lives, too many Israelis, too many Palestinians. Before arriving in Israel, Blinken was in Cairo. The president-elect of the Czech Republic is scheduled to speak with Taiwan's president today. As NPR's Rob Schmitz reports, their discussion is expected to spark criticism from China. On Saturday, Czech voters elected former Army chief and NATO official Petr Pavel as their new president. He beat out populist rival Andrei Babis, and in March, he will replace the current head of state Milos Zeman, who has been known for his pro-Beijing stance. That's why choosing to speak to Taiwanese president Tsai Ing-wen is a highly unusual first move by the new president-elect. A suicide bombing at a mosque in Pakistan today has killed at least 28 people and wounded dozens more. That blast went off at a mosque inside a high-security police compound in Peshara. This is NPR News. There were demonstrations in cities across the U.S. over the weekend focusing on the death of a black motorist in Tennessee. They followed the release of video by police in Memphis showing five officers tasing and beating 29-year-old Tyree Nichols. He died a few days after the traffic stop and arrest. Reginald Hardwick with Illinois Public Media reports on one demonstration in Urbana. Dozens of protesters marched Sunday, chanting the name of the Memphis man who died days after being beaten by police officers. The Party for Socialism and Liberation organized the march from the county courthouse to Urbana City Hall, just a mile from the University of Illinois. Organizer Abby Simpson says she was saddened but not surprised by the case. Even if we put like these cops in jail, and they should be, there's going to be more to take their place as long as the system is alive. Many in the crowd called policing racist and want financial resources redistributed. For NPR News, I'm Reginald Hardwick, Urbana. The five officers involved in Nichols' arrest are also black. Each has been fired from the Memphis police and each faces charges that include second-degree murder. It'll be the NFL's Kansas City Chiefs against the Philadelphia Eagles in Super Bowl 57 next month. I'm Dave Mattingly in Washington. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Republican state committee members will gather tomorrow to choose a party chairman for the next two years. Infighting within the GOP following last November's election could cost the current party chairman his job. More now from WBUR Steve Brown. Republican Party Chair Jim Lyons wants to continue in the job. He has support for many state committee members who share his strong conservative beliefs. But others in the party, including several elected Republican legislators, say Lyons is responsible for abysmal results at the polls last November and for the party's finances being in disarray. State Rep. Paul Frost says sticking with Lyons will mean even more infighting. What we need is someone who can kind of move the party forward, who can put aside past grudges or hard feelings and begin to rebuild the party to where we can have the resources to help candidates. Committee members will vote by secret ballot Tuesday night in Marlboro. 
For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Steve Brown. Boston will conduct its annual homeless census tonight. It'll determine how many people are living in and out of shelters. The information will help the state create programs to fight homelessness. In last year's count, the number of adults on their own without housing went down, while the number of homeless families went up. The man accused of shooting and killing a bystander inside the Holyoke Mall over the weekend is due in court today. The Hampton District Attorney says the shooting happened Saturday night inside the mall. It appears the victim was caught in the crossfire between two other people. Their name has not been released. It's 834. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the law firm of Nutter McLennan and Fish. Counsel to leading companies and institutions for more than a century. Client-focused, collaborative, this is Nutter. Online at Nutter.com. The Bruins' losing streak is up to three games. They fell to the Hurricanes 4-1 to last night in Raleigh. The Bees will visit the Toronto Maple Leafs on Wednesday. Then they'll be off for the All-Star break. In your forecast, mostly sunny and near 50 today. Cloudy with temperatures falling as low as 30 tonight. A chance of rain overnight. Tomorrow, a mix of sun and clouds and much colder, only in the low to mid-30s. Mostly sunny and low 30s on Wednesday. It's 42 degrees in Boston at 835. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Eric and Wendy Schmidt through the Schmidt Family Foundation, working together to create a just world where all people have access to renewable energy, clean air and water, and healthy food. On the web at theschmidt.org. From the Walton Family Foundation, working to solve social and environmental problems to improve lives today and benefit future generations. More information at waltonfamilyfoundation.org and from the Annie E. Casey Foundation. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. I'm Rupa Shanoi. There were demonstrations nationwide this weekend to protest the death of Tyree Nichols. The 29-year-old man was killed by police in Memphis, and the video of his death was made public on Friday. Boston Mayor Michelle Wu and the city's police commissioner say this underscores the importance of moving forward with police reforms here. WBUR's Walter Ruthman reports community advocates believe there's a lot of work to do. City leaders gathered in Chinatown Sunday morning to celebrate Lunar New Year. But many people were thinking about Memphis after the release of the police video showing the brutal beating of Nichols at the hands of five police officers. Police Commissioner Michael Cox said he was grappling with what he saw in the video. I I can't put into words, um, and I I won't even try. That's how bad it is. And for me, you know, I, I won't even try. Not today. Mayor Wu called the video a horror. It shows how much work we have to do as a country and as a society. But Wu said she's confident in the police reform process underway in the city. I feel so lucky that the standards that we have here, the level of professionalism and accountability and community-connected focus puts us at a different starting point than many places around the country. Boston implemented a slate of reforms after the police killing of George Floyd in 2020. There's a new online dashboard tracking things like how often police use their firearms and when they stop to interrogate people. There's also an expanded body camera program and a new Office of Police Accountability and Transparency. But a year into its existence, that office had only reviewed a handful of cases. You know, it it takes a minute to get the engines fired up, so I understand that, but I am still 
dismayed at what I would say is kind of an overall lackluster presence. That's Jamal Crawford. He served on the Boston Police Reform Task Force, the body that came up with recommendations for reform. Crawford says Boston also needs to reckon with the cases of people who were killed by police here. We need a deep dive, I believe, a study and research and an admission and an apology of what has already occurred in Boston. Across town at the 12th Baptist Church in Roxbury, the Reverend Jeffrey Brown said Nichols' death made him feel hopeless. Despite the promises of reform, that despite the promises of change, at any one point of time, a black man can be in a car, get stopped by police, and could die. Reverend Brown is a longtime community organizer and was part of the dramatic decrease in youth violence in the 90s. He urged his congregation to draw strength from faith. That when evil comes our way, that we don't bow to the evil, that we don't acquiesce to the evil, that we got to stand up and say, for God I live, and for God I will die. Brown said there were protests and promises after the death of George Floyd. It's time those promises are kept. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Walter Wuthman. House Republicans are ready to launch new oversight of the Biden administration with a set of hearings starting this week. The list of what they say they're concerned about starts with a look into spending tied to the pandemic, plus policy on immigration and the southern border. NPR congressional correspondent Claudia Guisaz has more. Republican Congressman James Comer and Jim Jordan are spending a lot of time together these days. We talk every day. We had breakfast together this morning. We work together. No problem there. That's Comer on his way to House votes on a recent afternoon. The Kentucky congressman is chairman of the Oversight Committee, and Jordan chairs the House Judiciary Panel. He knows what we're doing. We know what he's doing. Our staffs are close. Our committee rooms are next door to each other. So we work together very well. The House GOP hopes to cover a lot of ground starting this week with a series of hearings. The Judiciary Committee's first meeting will cover what Republicans dubbed, quote, Biden's border crisis. It is part of the GOP's probe into concerns surrounding immigration and security at the U.S.-Mexico border. Meanwhile, Comer says the oversight panel's first hearing will focus on spending tied to the pandemic relief bills, which he claims did not get enough scrutiny when Democrats had control of the House chamber. There have been reports of lots of waste, fraud and abuse with respect to the stimulus funds, PPP loan funds, unemployment funds and all of that. So we're just going to roll our sleeves up and get started there. At the same time, the oversight panel is conducting a probe into the Biden family and their business dealings. But Republicans have not uncovered new evidence backing up claims of concerns. Democrats say the focus on Biden is more about politics. Republicans, who won a narrow House majority in the midterm elections, campaigned on pledges to investigate Democrats. And House Speaker Kevin McCarthy has repeatedly emphasized oversight into the Biden administration and various federal agencies. One thing that Congress has, we have a constitutional responsibility to oversee the Justice Department, and that also means these um, individuals investigating. We have the constitutional power to do that, and we will. 
Republicans say there is plenty of plans in store for overseeing the Justice Department and the FBI. To help with that, they formed a new select judiciary subpanel on the, quote, weaponization of the federal government. It's something hardline conservatives pushed for, and it will be tasked with investigating claims government workers have politically targeted Republicans. Jordan said they're prepared to issue subpoenas if needed. We'll issue the subpoenas and try to get the information, documents that we that we need. And if they keep, if they give us the runaround, they give us the runaround. That's, I, I guess, I sort of expect that. Maryland Congressman Jamie Raskin, who is the House Oversight Committee's top Democrat, says there is room for the parties to work together. For example, given the recent discoveries of misplaced classified documents by former and current presidents, Raskin and Comer agree there could be legislative fixes to avoid such concerns in the future. But Raskin warns, extremist claims should not overtake GOP probes. Oversight is not about scandal mongering and sticking it to the other guys. Public oversight is about making sure the government is working for the people. That posture is part of a new, larger battle that will play out publicly, pitting House Republicans against Democrats in what's expected to be a long series of probes and hearings to come. Claudia Grisales, NPR News, The Capitol. I'm Rupa Shanoi in Boston. A heads up for drivers on the eastbound Mass Pike. Only the left lane is getting past emergency pothole repairs right now near the state police barracks in Weston. Delays begin back at Route 30. Coming up on Morning Edition, the Kansas City Chiefs and Philadelphia Eagles will meet in Super Bowl 57 next month in Glendale, Arizona. In your forecast, just a few clouds today and temperatures will be in the upper 40s, cloudy tonight and in the low 30s. Overnight, there's a chance of rain and tomorrow we return to the 30s. It'll be partly sunny. Right now, it's 42 degrees in Boston. Now, in business news, Boston-based Volition Capital says it'll use a new fund of $675 million to invest in promising startups. The money will go to software, internet, and consumer ventures. Volition says the money will come with a network and support system for the founders it invests in. A West Coast hospitality group is adding three New England properties to its profile. Lodge Camps just closed on a $7.5 million deal to buy the Seven Hills Inn in Lenox. The Boston Business Journal reports that Lodge also recently bought the lodge at Mount Snow in Westover, Vermont, and Ocean Gate Resort in Southport, Maine. Taqueria El Amigo in Waltham is being recognized as one of the top 100 restaurants in the country. That's according to Yelp users. The online review website compiled the list by looking at user comments and total ratings. Reviewers praised the restaurant's authentic tacos and value. It's 845. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Brookline Bank, where financial solutions are crafted to the needs of your business and delivered with a hands-on approach committed to your success. Learn more at brooklinebank.com. Member FDIC.
It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm A. Martinez. Super Bowl 57 is set as the Philadelphia Eagles will play the Kansas City Chiefs in a couple of weeks. They both got in yesterday in dramatically different ways. The Chiefs beat Cincinnati 23-20 on a last-second field goal, while the Eagles dominated the San Francisco 49ers 31-7. NPR sports correspondent Tom Goldman is here now. All right, so let's start with a close game for the AFC Championship. That was billed as a showdown between two great young quarterbacks, Kansas City's Patrick Mahomes and Cincinnati's Joe Burrow did their game match the hype? Um, For the most part, A. I mean, it did. It wasn't a shootout with tons of passing touchdowns, but both quarterbacks make big plays, some mistakes as well. Mahomes has been in the league since 2017, and he has become by consensus the NFL's best quarterback. But coming into yesterday's game, Joe Burrow was the guy generating the buzz in just three years he's become a great NFL quarterback known for his cool demeanor and clutch play he played in the Super Bowl last season and he's been inching toward Mahomes throne but yesterday a very good effort by Casey pass rushers made things tough for Burrow Mahomes had the better game and made the key play at the end running for big yardage on a sprained ankle the run set up the winning field goal so Mahomes I would say still is the king and what happened at the end of that run by Mahomes that was a backbreaker for the Bengals. That was rough. Uh, Cincinnati defensive end Joseph Asai pushed Mahomes after Mahomes was out of bounds. That's a no-no. He got a 15-yard penalty for it. That moved the ball into much easier field goal range for Kansas City kicker Harrison Butker, who made the game winner. A painful scene afterwards with Asai sobbing on the bench. He will be remembered for that penalty, even though the Bengals were saying the loss was not about one player, but disappointing to have a riveting game end like that. All right, now switching to the NFC title game. Uh, Philly really made quick uh, and easy work of the 49ers, but it probably helps when your opponent barely has a functioning quarterback, Tom. (laughs) It really does. Let me first say to Philly fans, A, so they don't get too annoyed, the Eagles were dominant on offense and defense, and they are an absolutely worthy Super Bowl contestant. In fact, they're the early favorites. But for non-Philly fans, This game was an absolute stinker. In the first quarter, San Francisco quarterback Brock Purdy got hit by an Eagles defender, injured his throwing arm. Now remember, Purdy has been this major story this season, a rookie drafted dead last in the NFL draft. He got the starting job because of injuries to the top two San Francisco quarterbacks, and then he led the 49ers on a 12-game win streak heading into yesterday's game. But Purdy's injury forced San Francisco to use its fourth option at quarterback. Josh Johnson comes in. Soon enough, he leaves the game with a concussion. So Purdy comes back in, and he could barely throw the ball. So San Francisco couldn't realistically compete. This game was going to be so good with both teams at full strength. But that game didn't happen. A big letdown. They might have tried to call Joe Montana or Steve Young, uh, you know, warm body there. All right, so a quick look forward to Super Bowl 57 in Arizona. Looks like a good matchup. Potentially great one. Mahomes has two weeks to heal his ankle. Kansas City's great tight end, Travis Kelsey, needs to heal an injured back. With everyone healthy, we should see two great complete football teams. The only prediction I will make at this point, A, is Donna Kelsey will be happy whoever wins. According to the Pro Football Hall of Fame, she'll be the first mother to have two sons play against each other in the Super Bowl, Travis against Philadelphia center Jason Kelsey. That's NPR sports correspondent Tom Goldman. Tom, thanks. You're welcome. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Martinez.
And I'm Steve Inskeep. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up, the Marketplace Morning Report previews this week's meeting of the Federal Reserve. And coming up at noon today, it's here and now. And Robin Young is here in studio to tell us what they're going to be talking about. Hey there, Robin. Hi there to you. And as we both know, it was a relatively calm weekend in the wake of the release of that uh, horrific video of the the death of Tyree Nichols. I mean, we we pretty much watched it Mm -hmm. on video. And while it was relatively calm over the weekend as far as response, the unease, the disgust, the anger continues. So we're going to be taking a deep dive into some of the questions raised. Uh, First of all, a closer look at this unit, the Scorpion unit, Mm -hmm. this unit of police officers charged with having sort of an accelerated reaction to what we're seeing as, you know, rising uh, homicide rates, but also street violence. I mean, we know that in a lot of cities, these pop-up drag racing uh, events are causing a lot of alarm. And part of what this unit was supposed to do was seize cars as well as guns. So we're going to talk to somebody. And the city announced that it was going to disband. Oh, disband. Yeah. Yeah. And others are, other cities are disbanding them as well. We'll talk to someone at the John Jay College uh, of Criminal Justice about these units and how they're thought of in the world of policing and raise some of the other questions raised by this awful event in Memphis. But then we're also going to just take another listen to Dave Crosby with his friend Steve Silberman. Um, Steve Silberman, you might know, is the author of the book Neurotribes, but he was also Dave Crosby's best friend. And we'll talk to him about songs like this one and others. Lots of music. Oh, lots at noon. Thanks, Robin. That's here and now. Today at noon, it's 8.51. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Boston Symphony Orchestra. Seek something new with the BSO's current season. Thrilling music and world-class performers await. Learn more today at bso.org. Hey, this is Steve Inskeep with NPR News, reminding you that your public radio station is a service, and the people who use that service are the largest single source of support for that service. Your old car can play a role. It can help pay for the producers, editors, and audio engineers, and others who create Morning Edition every day. Your old car can do that. Here's how. Learn more at wbur.org slash cars. Inflation's coming down, but don't expect interest rates to just yet. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Paychex, where HR, insurance, benefits, and payroll integrate into one platform. Whether two or 2,000 employees, Paychex can help make HR simple for businesses and employees. From Marketplace, I'm Sabri Beneshor, in for David Brancaccio. The Federal Reserve starts a two-day meeting on interest rates tomorrow. The expectation is that it will raise interest rates again, Fed Chair Jerome Powell will make an announcement on Wednesday. One question, of course, is how much will the Fed raise rates? Marketplace's Nancy Marshall-Genzer reports. Fed Chair Jerome Powell has said many times rate hikes depend on the data. We got a new reading on inflation Friday. The Personal Consumption Expenditures Price Index for December showed cooling inflation. The Fed's favorite inflation gauge, the core PCE, which strips out volatile food and energy prices, was up 4.4 percent last month from the same time in 2021. That's still higher than the Fed's 2 percent goal. Inflation is still rising, but at a slower rate. The Fed has been raising interest rates to make it harder for businesses and consumers to spend. The idea is to cool the economy and beat back inflation. Consumer spending did fall last month. 
Over the past few weeks, some Fed officials have said they'd be in favor of raising rates a quarter percentage point at this week's meeting, down from a half percentage point hike in December. I'm Nancy Marshall-Genzer for Marketplace. So the inflation that the Fed's been grappling with, that the whole country's been grappling with, has had a lot of causes. But one of the most important predictors of inflation is psychological. It's what we consumers expect inflation to do. Inflation can sometimes be a self-fulfilling prophecy. Well, there's been some good news on that front. According to the University of Michigan, consumers are now expecting inflation to fall below 4% in the coming year. Those expectations have now fallen for the past four months. Still, surveys show a lot of people are still kind of anxious when it comes to the economy. Marketplace's Mitchell Hartman reports. Consumer sentiment hit rock bottom last summer as inflation spiked. In the past few months, consumers have perked up a bit as prices, especially for gasoline, have fallen. But University of Michigan Consumer Survey Director Joanne Shu says sentiment is still near decade lows. Even though inflation has moderated and consumers feel better than they did a few months ago, they still feel pretty bad about the economy. Like prices are really high and their personal finances have been eroded by inflation. Meanwhile, most Americans still feel pretty confident about their job security, except recently, says Jesse Wheeler at polling firm Morning Consult. High income workers have become spooked by this frequent announcement of layoffs that we're seeing at major firms like tech and finance. Wheeler says high-income workers are more anxious now, while low-income workers remain upbeat because of the strong job market and rising wages. I'm Mitchell Hartman for Marketplace. All right, let's do the numbers. The FTSE in London is about flat. Dow, S&P, and NASDAQ futures are down in the 5 tenths to 1 and 2 tenths percent range with the Dow future down 168 points. The 10-year Treasury yield is at 3.551%. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by the Next Challenge for Media and Journalism, a competition hosted by American Public Media, awarding over $100,000 to the most promising media startups in the U.S. Information at thenextchallenge.com. All right, let's talk manufacturing. On the one hand, manufacturers in the U.S. now employ the most they have at any point in more than a decade. On the other hand, industrial production started to fall recently, starting in November. And hanging over everything, manufacturing included, is that anxiety Mitchell was talking about over what the economy is going to look like this year. So we thought we'd check in with Julie Shertel, CEO of Georgia-based global manufacturer Mativ makes everything from bulletproof glass coatings to printing supplies. Good morning, Julie. Good morning. So manufacturing activity kind of ended 2022 on a weak note. Production declined in November and December. What do you think is behind that? I think over the last two years, there's been numerous impacts to manufacturers. There's been the rising interest rates, the war in Ukraine. It's just created a lot of uncertainty, which means we as manufacturers have to be very agile and flexible in our approaches to pricing, to managing labor, inventories. For Mativ, it has made us become more agile and adaptive to these uncertain conditions. We continue to change how we manage labor in our plants, creating more flexibility for operators, working to create a more diverse workforce so that we tap into a greater percentage of women in manufacturing and people of color, and working to upskill existing operators more quickly. In November and in December, 
manufacturing as a whole added 8,000 jobs per month, which is very far below the monthly average of 32,000 for the whole of the year. What do you think we're going to see when we get the latest hiring data? You know, it's difficult to predict. I'd say with the current conditions, we are not seeing a loosening up in the labor market, at least not at MADIF. So we're continuing to really work to increase our hiring, specifically in our operating plants, and then using different mechanisms of flexibility that we've tried to provide to operators to increase our retention within those plants. So we're not seeing a loosening in the labor market, at least not yet at MADIV in the U.S., What does inflation look like from the vantage point of a manufacturer like yourself? Currently, we're seeing some input prices start to contract, but believe inflation will remain an issue in 2023. For example, we're seeing reductions in some of our commodity chemicals like polypropylene and also our transportation costs that are coming down and trending toward pre-pandemic levels. But on the flip side, we're not seeing deflation in many of our specialty chemicals and fiber. Energy prices are down from peak levels late last year, but I would say still higher than a medium-term equilibrium price range. And then lastly, I'd say we'll continue to see labor costs escalating. So it's a little bit of a mixed bag, but I believe strong pricing power is really the key to offset inflation. And we've been able to demonstrate that over the last two years. Julie Shirtel is CEO of Georgia-based global manufacturer Mativ. Good to talk to you. Thank you so much. By the way, if you are looking to learn more about economics and the way policymakers think about economic data, consider signing up for our Marketplace Crash Course, Econ 101. It's free, and you can learn with us at your own pace, marketplace.org slash crash course. In New York, I'm Sabri Beneshore with the Marketplace Morning Report. From APM, American Public Media. This is 90.9 WBUR. We're going to have a relatively warm day today before it cools down for the rest of the week. Upper 40s and mostly sunny today. Clouds move in tonight as it falls to the low 30s. Rain is possible overnight, then partly sunny and only in the mid-30s tomorrow. It's 42 degrees in Boston, and we're coming up on 9 o'clock. The BBC is next. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Plymouth Rock Assurance auto and home insurance that strives to treat you with kindness and humanity because they believe there's never been a better time for nice. PlymouthRock.com In 1987, the world banned a range of commonly used chemicals. It's being called an unprecedented display of international cooperation to protect the world's environment. The Montreal Protocol signed today aims at stopping the deterioration of the ozone layer in the atmosphere. And it worked. I'm Kimberly Atkins-Store. Is that a lesson for tackling climate change? That's On Point this morning at 10 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR News Station. I'm Midday Host Jack Lepiars, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston. 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, 89.1 WBUH-Brewster, and you can listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.